0: it's interesting that Lewis said that he felt at one particular point in his life he, he had to write a fairy tale or he would burst and The Lion, the Witch and the Water I think in a way really did burst out of him in, a, in an almost fully formed way there, there's very little calculation about it it just sort of emerged ready made almost or fell from heaven into his lap um, it was the book he was born to write
1: welcome to And If Love Remains. I am your host, Mike Levitt, and I am uh, thrilled and excited about this um, really uh, important and and fun uh, podcast today that we're going to be doing. Um, Today we're going to be celebrating C.S. Lewis's amazing and seminal work, um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, much loved by children and adults alike. And, um, and and this month, October of 2020, um, is the 70th anniversary of its initial publication. Thrilled to have to talk about this book, uh, Professor Michael Ward, who is a Senior Research Fellow at Blackfriars Hall, University of Oxford, and Professor of Apologetics at Houston Baptist University. Um, he is the author of the award-winning Planet Narnia, The Seven Heavens in the Imagination of C.S. Lewis. And the co-editor of the Cambridge Companion to C.S. Lewis, um, he is also uh, um, was able on the fiftieth anniversary of Lewis's death, um, he unveiled a permanent national memorial to him at Poets' Corner, Westminster Abbey, um, and is the co-editor of the volume of commemorative essays marking the anniversary, marking this uh, marking the anniversary entitled "C.S. Lewis at Poets' Corner." Um, He was the resident warden of the Kilns, which is Lewis's Oxford home from 1996 to 1999. He studied uh, English at Oxford, theology at at Cambridge, and has a PhD in divinity from St. Andrews. Um, And of course, you know, the reason we have him on and his chief claim to fame uh, is that he handed a pair of X-ray spectacles to uh, James Bond in the movie, The World Is Not Enough. And I know you probably can't say anything about it in case you have a future consideration, but I think you got robbed. I think you should have gotten the Academy Award for Best Supporting Extra. And um, you know, hopefully in the future they'll consider you for that. Yeah. But I want to <laughs> thank you, thank Professor Michael Ward, to And if love remains,
0: <laughs> thank you for having me. Nice to be with you, Mike. It's
1: my pleasure, my pleasure. And especially at this time, it, it really is a wonderful time to talk about this book. And and um, we we all, any, anybody who loves C.S. Lewis seems to have kind of a C.S. Lewis origin story. Um, I I. Came to C. S. us, Lewis a little bit later in life. My wife loved his books, and uh, and my son um, was a reader uh, quite early in his life, and 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 uh, uh, read his stories very young, and and seemed to to notice some of the Christian symbolism early on that that I hadn't noticed. Um, and so, you know, I I. I came to him late, but I've learned just adore and love, and, and just think what an amazing man he was. But what is your origin story? How did you come to C.S. Lewis and 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 um, and come to his work?
0: Uh, very early, my parents read the Narnia books to me and my two brothers when we were growing up, and uh, some of my earliest memories actually consist of um, uh, sun- Sunday mornings before before breakfast. Even we would pile into our parents' bed. And my mum would read uh, a chapter or two of the latest chronicle, and then we'd all get up and have breakfast and go off to church. And uh, I remember that vividly, um, not least because I was always squidged between my parents and my two other brothers. They they got edge seats, as it were. Um, right. And uh, that was lovely. And my parents told me just enough about this, the second level of meaning, the Christian parallels, to pique my interest. And I found that to be a you know a cool thing that there was a christian element to these stories because most other stories i was reading you know just had one level of meaning uh so that's how i was first exposed to cs lewis and as soon as i was old enough to read the 90 books for myself i did so um and then i went on to his other fiction and his christian apologetics and then into his academic writings and i did an english degree at oxford and so i began you know for the first time to study him and write about him a bit more seriously and academically,
1: and and what and what what caused that? Like, why, why did you decide to to really that that was going to be in a way your life's work? To to is to study C.S. Lewis.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, of course, I didn't know it would be my life's work when I was just an undergraduate. I was just pursuing a keen interest of mine, and uh, you know, because I liked his works and found them very interesting. And, you know, because they appeal to my twin interests, which have always been literature and theology, uh, he was, you know, the natural person for me to to turn to when it came time for me to do my PhD. Um, so it was never a sort of calculated um, decision that, oh, I'm going to become a C.S. Lewis scholar. It was more, I'm a C.S. Lewis reader and enthusiast, and, and I will just follow my own you know, hedonistic impulses, as it were, <laughs> do, what, do what pleases me. And, um, and actually, I think that, that that's not a bad uh, strategy for for would-be academics, to, to follow whatever that you most like, um, because what, what you like, what you love, what you're most interested in is probably what you'll study best. Um, right. And uh, certainly proved the case for me. At any rate, um, I've... Um, I've not yet tired of him and, uh, I'm hoping still to, you know, for many years yet to keep keep writing and, and studying and speaking about him.
1: He he seems, he seems definitely to be a, um, a deep well that, that doesn't have a bottom. Um, and, and, you know, I, 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 when you read about him and you read, you read his, um, you know, you, you read his stories, it, they, they, you never get sick of him because there's just more there there.
0: That's right. I mean, he was just a huge man with a very diverse output. Um, you know, there are, there are huge men who, who have a narrow output. Um, and so they, you know, they might be just as important figures, but they're, they're less interesting because they wrote on, you know, in, in only one area. Whereas Lewis, you know, he's got his fiction, both children's and adult fiction, He's got his Christian apologetics. He's got his academic writings on English literature. So, three major departments. And I haven't even mentioned his poetry, which is quite significant, actually. And then, in addition to all his writings, he had a very interesting life um, teaching at Oxford, an you know, adult conversion, interacting with other famous people like Tolkien, and then having a most remarkable late marriage to Joy Davidman, which was itself a subject of a feature film. <laughs> so, you know, everywhere you look, Lewis is just a fascinating, intriguing, and as you say, yeah, bottomlessly interesting man.
1: It's funny. I mean, would it be fair to say that um, maybe next to Shakespeare, he might be arguably the most important literary figure in um, in in the English-speaking world?
0: um well it all depends how you measure these things um and it may be a bit too early to put lewis on the, on a par with shakespeare um you know who's had several centuries to acquire his his reputation
1: true um, true
0: but, but yeah i mean i i sometimes find myself thinking of shakespeare in comparison to lewis just because of the breadth of of vision you know when you read shakespeare you've got everything from you know, silly romantic comedies through, you know, English histories to late romances and great tragedies, not to mention again, Shakespeare's own poetry. Um, So there's the same kind of vast canvas, a very colourful, diverse canvas in Shakespeare as, as there is in Lewis's writings. But of course we know a lot more about Lewis's life than we know about Shakespeare's. So so, so Lewis has a, in, at least in one respect, something of an advantage over the Bard there.
1: Right. Right. Well, and, and, and one of the reasons I'm thrilled to have you on is because um, because of the important book that you wrote, Planet Narnia and, and the work that you, you did um, and ha- are continuing to do um, and I want you to go into that a, a little bit about how you, the discovery you made, because I really do believe this, this might be one of the most important um, literary discoveries that, that we have of, of anybody, at least in, in, you know, in 20th century writing for sure. And, and it's quite a remarkable story. So uh, will you please take, give us a summary and of, of how you came to this discovery and, 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 uh, and what it's all about.
0: Yeah. Well, this is, um, a discovery I made in uh, two thousand and one, I think it was, quite a long time ago now, um, and it's all to do with the Narnia chronicles and, and what what the overarching or undergirding imaginative structure to the chronicles is. Um, I've already mentioned that they had, you know, they have two obvious levels of meaning. They've got the superficial story level, um, which a you know a, a, a young child can enjoy. Uh, they've got the biblical parallels, um, which can be appreciated if you have scriptural knowledge. Um, but quite a lot of Lewis scholars and critics have said there must be a third level of meaning because because the books don't seem to hang together uh, as, as consistently and coherently as you would expect from a man like C.S. Lewis right as you know lewis was a very rigorous and consistent thinker and he didn't do things randomly or chaotically but when when you consider the narnia chronicles from one point of view they, they they do seem to be a bit random um all sorts of odd things crop up in in different chronicles you know why is father christmas in the lion the witch and the wardrobe for instance you know he doesn't obviously belong there, and some people, some of Lewis's friends, actually advised Lewis to leave Father Christmas out of the of that first story because, you know, the Narnians. Um, they show a knowledge of Father Christmas, but the Narnians show no knowledge of a festival called Christmas, let alone of a character called Christ. Huh. Um, so, right. what would they mean by Father Christmas in Narnia? Um, it doesn't obviously make sense. It doesn't seem to logically cohere. And then you've got other oddities in later books, like the appearance of Bacchus in Prince Caspian. Um, And, uh, you know, various other peculiarities in in later books, but I suppose we ought to stick to the Lion, the Witch and the Water. Um, Anyway, there are, Lots of reasons to think that there ought to be a third level of significance in these books, and and different scholars and critics have, have suggested all sorts of different theories. They've suggested that maybe Lewis was working to the to the seven deadly sins, or you know, know right. seven classical virtues, or the seven books of Spencer's Fairy Queen, which was one of his favourite poems, and all sorts of different sevens have been suggested as his as his as his pattern as his scheme, but rather remarkably no one had considered the seven heavens the seven planets of the medieval cosmos and that is remarkable because the seven heavens are all over lewis's work they are present in his ransom trilogy you know the three books of interplanetary adventure that he wrote yes they are present in in a very long complex poem he wrote in the 1930s called the planets they are present in you know, academic discussions in the discarded image and elsewhere.
1: Um, and this was part of his his academic knowledge. I mean, this is this is part of the the corpus that he was you know putting out into the world. What had to do with medieval writing and mm. and um, you know this is this is it's not like it would be unfamiliar to him.
0: No, not at all. I mean, he was a medieval scholar. That was his area of special expertise as an academic. So he knew, you know. About the old pre-Copernican, the uh, the geocentric model of the cosmos, um, and wrote about it extensively, as I say, and in all different departments of his output, academic, po- poetic, and uh, fiction. But I, but interestingly, nobody had ever asked themselves, is it possible that the seven Narnia books are keyed to the seven heavens, and this was a I kind of bolt from the blue that hit me between the eyeballs one night, <laughs> back in two thousand and three or whenever it was. Um, I think I said two thousand and one earlier, but it was two thousand and three, okay. um, or, or or anyway, so sometime like that. I I ought to know this, oughtn't I? But um, can't remember precisely. Um, I know it was. A okay.
1: The important thing is that it
0: happened. It was a Wednesday night in February, <laughs> and I, I was lying in bed and i was reading his long poem about the planets and i got to the lines about jupiter and i read in this poem that jupiter one of jupiter's influences according to medieval thought as as you know represented by lewis in this poem one of his influences was to bring about winter past and guilt forgiven and those five words leapt off the page at me winter past and guilt forgiven Because they seemed to me like a five-word summary of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Right. All about the passing of winter, the White Witch's winter, and the forgiving of Edmund's guilt. Edmund, who has betrayed his brother and sisters and gone over to the White Witch's side. So I look more closely at these lines about Jupiter and the, the jovial influences, and so many of the lines in the poem link up with images and themes in the book. And then my mind slowly cranking, I, I thought, well, there are another six planets and there are another six chronicles. Perhaps they all match up. And it was pretty easy to see that they did. Wow. And I, was, I was stunned. I was almost literally <laughs> concussed. I felt like I'd fallen down and knocked my head because I, I, I'd been reading these books for, well, about 30 years, nearly 30 years by that point. And I felt I knew them already very well. Um, and here was a whole new dimension of complexity and intricacy revealing itself to me. And, uh, it was just stunning. And so I, I've, I've spent the last 17 years or however long it is, um, you know, writing about this, speaking about it, uh, even making a BBC documentary about it called the Narnia Code. And, um, I'm pleased to see say, say that nearly everybody who's who's looked at my findings at all seriously says yeah of course this is what
1: this explains the other way <laughs> it's, it's the key that unlocks that that door that that wardrobe door if you will <laughs> yeah yes yeah
0: and, and it's a beautiful and and very intriguing thing that he did and there are all sorts of reasons why he would have done it which I go into in depth in my book planet nine here um and there's a much shorter version of that book called the Narnia code for people who don't want all the detail and footnotes. Um, and yeah, maybe we can talk about some of those. Yeah. I I,
1: I, I, you know, as you tell this story, it, it strikes me because I, because, um, you know, I do know that, that you, um, you know, you did study theology. I, I just, I have to wonder if, you know, you're, you, you feel like you were put in, and you were prepared for this moment for, uh, even Lewis to look down on the earth and say, okay, I'm ready for this, for this secret to be revealed. (laughs) Here it is. And Michael Ward is the one to do it. Do you feel that
0: way a little bit? Well, a little bit felt felt a bit providential. Yes. And in fact, I, in the final chapter of planet Narnia, I write about the circumstances of this discovery in a bit more detail because there, there was something that happened earlier that very day, which I think set me up as it were, Spiritually to to perceive what was going on here, so it did feel to me a bit of a godsend, a bit of a gift, um, and yeah, so it was a great, as it were, you know, pri- privilege to to stumble across this when when other people had been looking for this key or or right scheme, but for some reason it, that it had passed them by, and it fell to me to 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 realise it. Do but you, you know, the important thing is not you know. The important thing is not at all. That it was I who discovered it, right? The other, thing-
1: other than other than it had yeah. to be you because you were prepared. I mean, you you had studied. I mean, you were you were the man for the job.
0: <laughs> well, is it, it turned out to be the case, yeah. But um, you know, I, I couldn't have got there without help from a lot of other people.
1: Of, of course. course. Yeah. A, a question though on 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 um, on that. Oh, and I, I just lost my train of thought. I apologize, but I think I I think of of um, specifically it being you know the, this hodgepodge of, of of books, and 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 I guess that brings me to to a question about about the books themselves, and specifically the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, um, because uh, did he write that when he wrote that book? Was that meant to be a one off? Or I mean, it seems as if as if it couldn't have been if if he had this kind of master plan in mind as he as he wrote. Um, what what's your thinking on 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 the series? You know, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, as it pertains to the series. Was it was it this this one off children's story, or or did he have this in mind from the beginning?
0: Well, um, my argument in Planet Nine is that it when Lewis started writing the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, he had in mind that he would key it to the th- to the Im- symbolism of Jupiter. That he would infuse it with these jovial images. Um, I, 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 I've got no way of knowing whether at that point Lewis had all seven books laid out secretly in mind. He he uh, he certainly doesn't say that he did, and indeed he indicates the opposite. He says that he only had one book. Uh, in his mind to begin with but that's no objection to my my case because the, you, you know if that is indeed true then it just grew incrementally it, each book as it came to him uh, was keyed to the next to another planet and he stopped after 7 um and it's worth bearing in mind that he had pub- that he had written four of the books before the first was even published so it, he you know once he knew there was going to be a series he he was able if he needed to to go back and make adjustments to the uh, you know the earlier book mm. um so that they would cohere as a series and not as a, right. a seven you know um disconnected units um so yeah i mean some some people seem to get very hung up about this issue and they say oh well if lewis didn't have all seven books in mind to begin with then it can't be true but that doesn't follow at all it just grew one book at a time and then it seems after he'd written three or perhaps four at that point he evidently decided he was going to do seven right um, but you know it doesn't really matter
1: and and um i mean there's a and and then you know there I, I here here's another question that i have do you do you suspect that the reason why this, this key wasn't found, um, is because, uh, kind of our cultural, um, modern, um, sympathies that, you know, the fact that we live in such a literal world, we see, when we think of the solar system, we, we think of what we learned in school and, and, you know, there's nine planets and, and Mm. it's, it's built in such a way, um, that we, we, like it's almost a veil was over our eyes. We couldn't even see what, what CS Lewis was trying to do with these, with these medieval um, Mm. cosmology. Mm. Um, Do you think that's a possibility?
0: Well, that's no doubt part of it that we are just unfamiliar with this old symbolic system. Um, And yeah, we, we've, we tend to think that that old cosmological arrangement, you know, having been superseded by the, uh, by the heliocentric cosmos and, and Newton and then Einstein and so on, that it it, it was is just passe and it's, it's of no importance and it's of no interest to to us or to anyone. Uh, so that's that is indeed I'm sure a factor. But the, a more sort of pertinent factor for those who know their C.S. Lewis is that um, m- most of the students and scholars on C.S. Lewis have been Christians, as indeed I am. Um, and a, but a lot of Christians assume that anything which even comes close to astrology must by definition be unchristian. And therefore, they, they think, Lewis cannot have been interested in it. But, but that's based on a, a misapprehension, because actually there was a long tradition of Christian astrology and we shouldn't think of astrology as, as necessarily a bad or a dangerous thing because astrology only means the study of the stars. You know, you have biology, the study of life. You have geology, the study of the earth. You have anthropology, the study of humankind. You have astrology, the study of the stars. So nothing necessarily wrong about studying an aspect of God's creation. It all depends what you do with that astrology. If it leads you to worship the stars or if it leads you to regard their supposed influences as determinative and controlling you and overruling your free will and your responsibility before God, then, yeah, that would be wrong astrology. That would be bad. But what if it was good astrology? What if it was like what we see in Matthew's Gospel, when the three wise men come from the East uh, following a star? We have seen his star in the East, and we have come to worship him, the wise men say. Sorry, and there may not have been three of them, but there were three gifts. That's why we think there were three of them. Um, right. So, yeah, I mean, that's only one example of good astrology, of, of finding spiritual significance in an aspect of God's creation, which leads you to greater devotion to Christ. And it's that kind of Christian tradition of astrology which Lewis and so many of the of the people that he's he's basing his ideas on um, practiced or, or believed in, or at any rate used poetically. Because I don't think Lewis himself uh, subscribed to, to anything like um, you know, the, the medieval understanding in a literal sense. But he right. regarded it as a useful symbolic system. Indeed, he says in 1935 that the, uh, the seven heavens, as conceived by medieval astrology, seem to me to have a permanent value as spiritual symbols, which is especially worthwhile in our own generation. So he makes it very clear that he's he's got a definite, keen interest and a high estimation of the value of these seven heavens.
1: Yes, absolutely. So let's let's point a little bit to, uh, the Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, and and you you mentioned uh, Father Christmas. How and so so your discovery really hinged on on this planet's um. This planet's poem, specifically the 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 part about Jupiter and how that pointed to the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. How is Jupiter the um, fill the 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 Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe universe? How does that infuse itself into it?
0: Yeah, well, uh, the main thing to get clear in your mind when thinking about Jupiter is that Jupiter is the king. Symbolically speaking, Uh, Lewis makes this totally clear in in his book, The Discarded Image. Uh, But he he says, we must have a particular kind of king in mind. We must think of a king at peace, enthroned, taking his leisure, serene, tranquil, magnanimous. When Jupiter dominates, we will have prosperity and halcyon days. Um, It's these kinds of kingly, regal, monarchical qualities. Uh, which are associated with Jove, to give him his other name. Um, So, you know, it's very interesting that when Aslan is first mentioned to the children, they don't know who he is. They've never met him before. And they say, is he a man? And the beavers say, Aslan a man? Of course not. He's the king. That's the very first description given of Aslan. He is the king. The king. And we're later told he's the king of the wood. He's the king of the beasts. He's got a a crown and a standard and a royal pavilion and all these royal accoutrements about him. He's got a great royal head. He's the son of the emperor. Um, All these monarchical terms and images cluster around Aslan himself. So that's one way in which Jupiter is as it were manifesting his influence Um, or rather, you know, this is one way in which Lewis is depicting his Christ character by means of Jupiter influence, Jupiter symbolism. That'd be the the better way to put it. Um, And then when you turn from Aslan to the children, well, remember what happens when they first all get into the wardrobe together. They they f- find that it's cold and snowy inside, and they put on the fur coats. And we're told that these fur coats looked more like royal robes than coats when they put them on. There, right. right at the start of the children's adventures in Narnia, we're getting an indication that they themselves will become royal, because they're dressing up, you know, appropriately for that um, that status. And that's indeed where the story finishes at the end. In the great well, everybody seems in
1: Caer to Caer be Cair. anticipating them as well.
0: Exactly, yes. There, there's the, this great prophecy about the four thrones at Caer that, You know, The Narnians have been waiting for these children to turn up to be the kings and queens. And we're told repeatedly, once a king in Narnia, always a king in Narnia. Once a queen in Narnia, always a queen in Narnia. So you know, the important thing from a Christian point of view is that Lewis is using this symbolism implicitly Quietly, secretly, he's not making it overt, but he's using it to indicate how when you follow Christ, you become Christ-like. So when the children follow Aslan, the king, they themselves become royal. It's a, it's a, it's a beautifully simple but but sophisticated theological spiritual truth that Lewis is communicating, but he's doing it at a subliminal level. It's not something which he asks us to uh you know consciously recognize, but it's something which he just expects us to intuit or to feel. He just throws us into this jovial world so that we will recognise the, the harmonies that there that are present between the Christ character and his followers, which is how, you know, obviously, in his own Christian belief, he thought people should live and behave in the real world.
1: Right. Is, is that, um, is that why I I remember a story, maybe it's apocryphal. I don't know, but I remember a story of, of him saying, uh, something to the effect that he was sh- shocked, um, how popular the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe was, um, because he realized that if he could re, you know, in a way rewrite the Christian story, um, that, you know, that, that it would sell, that, that it would become this a way to infuse Christianity by using these stories. Is is that a true story that he said, or, or a true? Uh, well, it, it's it's true, but but about a different book.
0: Um, oh, okay, exactly. I think what you're mentioning there is with reference to his first ransom trilogy book, *Out of the right. Silent Planet*. Where that's right. Says, yeah, any amount of Christian theology can be smuggled into people's imaginations under under cover of romance without them being aware of it. And So yeah, he learnt that that was a good strategy in his trilogy. and yeah, he deployed it, but even more cunningly, even more cannily in in the Narnia books.
1: Right, right. and and um, and part of that, well, another aspect of that that um, jovial spirit, the the spirit of, of Jupiter, is the idea, of and you mentioned it before, uh, guilt guilt forgiven. Um, how do we see that, and, and why is that a, a Jupiter um, character, uh, character trait?
0: Yes, well, this is something that, um, as I say, he mentions in his Planets poem, where he talks about winter past and guilt forgiven. And um, I think he got that particular aspect of Jupiter um, not not probably so much from um, his medieval sources as at least I've not been able to, to trace a particular tradition of medieval thought on, on that forgiveness aspect, uh, but more from his fellow inkling, Charles Williams, you know, who was one, one of his closest friends, um, because Charles Williams, in one of his works, um writes about how Jupiter is a red-pierced planet. And if you know your astronomy, you know that Jupiter does indeed have a big red spot on it, you know, the great red right. eye of Jupiter. And Charles Williams, in one of his poems, um focuses in on, on this red eye, the red pierced planet. And then C. S. Lewis writing about Williams's poem. Uh, I'll just quote you a A sentence, Charles Williams assumes, this is C.S. Lewis, Charles Williams assumes that the huge reddish spot which astronomers observe on the surface of Jupiter is a wound and the redness is that of blood. Jupiter, the planet of kingship, thus wounded, becomes another ectype, that is to say another reflection, another symbol of the divine king wounded on Calvary. So that shows us that, you know, in Lewis's own circle of friends, there was this idea of Jupiter having a particular symbolic connection with Christ on the cross, you know, the divine king wounded on Calvary because of the the red spot. You know, think of, you know, the, the bleeding side of Christ when we see images of the crucifixion. That's, you know, that's what Jupiter signifies. And so when Aslan is put to death, uh, for the sake of the, tra- the traitor Edmund, uh, that's a that's the Jupiter influence being you know exerted in a in a very palpable and precious fashion.
1: That is that that's powerful, and that is such a. Uh, um, I know when he writes that part of the book. I mean, he slows down his prose, and it's very like it's, it's one of the most moving scenes in, uh, and, and memorable scenes in, in all of the, the, the Chronicles of Narnia is, is, mm. um, is Aslan sacrificing himself to reach that deeper magic mm. in order to, um, you know, to have that guilt forgiven. Mm.
0: Yeah. So, you know, we've talked about kingship, we've talked about guilt forgiven and the other, you know, major aspect of the jovial influence is winter past
1: hmm.
0: because jupiter is associated with with springtime or with may time especially um and that is very present in the in the medieval sources that lewis is drawing upon so remember how you know in the, at the start of the lion the witch and the wardrobe, we're told that, that the white witch has put the land of narnia under a, a hundred year curse and it's important to remember that this winter is a is an accursed winter. A, a lot of people, I think, rather get that wrong, and they they think of Lucy going through the wardrobe into this romantic winter wonderland with you know snowflakes falling
1: beautifully. Thank you, Hollywood,
0: on, on her eyelashes, and you know, it's not that kind of winter. It's a dark and forbidding winter, and even some of the trees are on the witch's side. Right. And the only beautiful bit about like, this winter is. Is the description of the beavers dam. and it's, you know, that's testimony to the beavers themselves and their own faithfulness that they've managed to make something beautiful even out of this accursed state. But otherwise, it's it's a forbidding and doom laden winter which needs to be got rid of, which his wife, you know, tumnus laments the, the lost days of jollification. And he, he longs for Christmas, you know. Uh it's always winter, but never Christmas. It's it's a permanently petrified state. You don't even get the good thing of winter. You get only the bad. But of course, as Aslan comes, when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death, and so the the, the spring defeats the winter. And you know, to put it in planetary terms. Jupiter defeat defeats Saturn because Saturn in Lewis's imagination was always associated with winter and coldness and darkness and death
1: wow and and of course that's that's where we have father Christmas arrive we have him come to start the celebration mm. um, you know of the end of winter
0: <laughs> that's right and you know it's, it's it's worth bearing in mind that you know just from a point of from the point of view of of the calendar that christmas day follows quickly upon the shortest day of, of winter you know the 21st of december the, the winter solstice or whatever it's called um and yeah so as soon as father christmas comes we know which way things are heading it's it's going to get better and uh yeah soon the country turns from january to may we're told and
1: uh and what does he do he, he gives the children gifts And, you know, and these gifts are, are, you know, important and also part of their, you know, going back to the, to the first thing going, it's part of their, um, kingly powers in a way it's, it's what, what signifies them. I think.
0: Yes. Yes. It's part of their royal status that they get these, these gifts. Um, so yeah, winter passes, guilt is forgiven. And all of this happens under the true King. Long live the true King. Father Christmas says when he, when he sleds off having given children the gifts.
1: Yes, that's so, so how we've talked, we've talked about, you know, these themes and these ideas. Um, and, and I know Lewis insisted that Narnia was not an allegory. Um, and, and although we, we all, you know, at least those of us who, who see it in from a Christian perspective, you know, um, you know, maybe treat it as if it is. How how is how is it not an allegory?
0: Yeah, this is Lewis being rather pedantic, if you like. He had he had, he had a very narrow definition of allegory uh, in this regard. He he said, an allegory is when you take something immaterial or or abstract, uh, you know, like a like the like the uh, the feeling of doubt, and you give it a concrete embodiment. Likewise with despair. Despair is, is a feeling or an emotion, a sentiment. Um, it's not a concrete reality. But if you're writing an allegory, you can give both doubt and despair concrete forms, which is what John Bunyan does famously in The Pilgrim's Progress, probably the greatest allegory in the English language. Hmm. Uh, John Bunyan gives us a giant despair who locks people up in Doubting Castle. Right. So there, doubt and despair are given the forms of a castle and a giant. And that's what Lewis means by allegory, um, an abstract thing in terms of a concrete reality. Whereas in Narnia, he says it's not allegorical because um, Jesus is not an abstract or immaterial reality. Jesus Mm -hmm. is indeed the most concrete reality there is. Um, so to give him the form of, an, of a lion to make him, you know, represented as Aslan, is not strictly speaking allegorical in this pati- according to this particular definition. But if you if you use a slightly looser definition of allegory as one thing in terms of another, then we can fairly describe Narnia as allegorical. Jesus is depicted in terms of a lion. And, you know, I, th- I think that's a fair use of the word allegory myself, but Lewis preferred to use the term supposition. Let us suppose that Jesus became incarnate in a world like Narnia. What form might he have taken? Let us suppose it was a lion. And that's suppositional writing, not allegorical writing as far as he's concerned.
1: Okay. That makes sense. That's, that's, in, that's interesting. Um, I want to ask you, um, well, let me start this way. I, I, you know, um, like I said, I, I came to this book a little bit later in in life, um, and uh, I, w- one of the scenes that really touched me um, is actually after the the Aslan resurrection, um, when when he summons Edmund into uh, to him, and Edmund gives his confession, and and one and I think it's because it's something I can relate to. Um, he emerges and he's addressing, um, the Narnians. And he says, uh, something to the effect of, um, (laughs) Edmund has confessed. We've talked about it. Let's not mention it again. Mm. And to me, that was so moving because, you know, I know, I know I've done things that, that, you know, I'd love to get off my chest and, and, and know that God has forgiven and forgotten and, and that whole idea. But I'm curious. for, from your perspective what what is one or, or was one of your very favorite scenes from the lion the witch and the wardrobe and, and why is that
0: mm. yeah well i too like that moment when edmund is restored to his brother and sisters uh it, it's it's done very simply but profoundly mm-hmm. um uh, and one of the the clever things about it is that lewis doesn't take us into the conversation between aslan and edmund Right. We, we just see them at a distance walking together in the dewy grass, apart from the rest of everybody. And there's no need to tell you, and no one ever heard, what Aslan was saying, but it was a conversation which Edmund never forgot. Um, so that, that's a very subtle way of of reminding the reader that, you know, we only have one soul to really be concerned about, and that's our own. And how we relate to God is the important thing, and we we shouldn't get too fixated upon what is happening between other people and God. That's their, uh, yes. Uh, so, you know, mind your own business. I think is is one of Lewis's principles in the spiritual life. Um. So yeah, that's a great moment. But my own, probably my own favorite is a bit later in the story when. Uh, it's in the final chapter, actually. When I'll just read you the bit of it. Um, that night they slept where they were how Aslan provided food for them all I don't know but somehow or other they found themselves all sitting down on the grass to a fine high tea at about 8 o'clock next day they began marching eastward down the side of the great river and the next day after that at about tea time they actually reached the mouth the castle of Cair Paravel on its little hill towered up above them before them were the sands with rocks and little pools of salt water and seaweed and the smell of the sea long miles of bluish-green waves breaking forever and ever on the beach and oh the cry of the seagulls have you heard it can you remember and that's just a fantastic moment yeah. if you ask like me um because it's a very odd moment in one way in the, the in the way that lewis directly addresses the reader and says have you heard seagulls and can you remember them and if you've heard seagulls of course you can remember them why why shouldn't you be able to remember them right it's an odd question but the point of the question i think is is really to as it were dislodge the reader from the the prison of the present moment and to get them to cast their mind back to some happy summer holiday they had by the sea you know perhaps as a child perhaps you know some lovely summer holiday with their family and one's first glimpse of the sea is often a you know a very momentous occasion for for people um there's a sense of freedom and freshness and expanse and um so by casting your mind back to that happy day in your past you are as it were making a kind of imaginative move similar to the to the um the forgiving of guilt you're getting back to an innocent moment in your past right uh, you're undoing you know the the uh the, the shackles of of time and sin and and sadness and old age or, you know, however old you may be, you were once younger. And the idea of getting back to youth, getting back to a, an untroubled past, you know, a paradisal past, effectively get getting back to Eden, that's all, you know, symbolically similar to, to redemption, to forgiveness. Yes. Um, but, it, but it's well, so, so indirectly and so discreetly, um, right you hardly understand what's happening to you but it has it goes straight to the heart if you read it in the right way
1: oh it, it yes it's 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 very much like a, um you know how we become a new creature how we how we can return to that innocence as you said it's it's mm. that's quite beautiful
0: mm, it is i i love that moment in particular um, wow. i mean lewis remember lewis had a. Uh, a great interest in what he called joy, this unsatisfied desire or longing, this inconsolable pang for unity with with beauty and and ultimately with with the divine, with God himself. Um, And he writes all about that in Surprised by Joy, his autobiography. Um, And very often in his fiction, he's wanting to encapsulate a moment of joy, that kind of pang of yearning or longing and I think that this moment in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe is probably the, the best example of him doing that anywhere in his writings and I think that's partly why The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe is, I mean there are many reasons but this is one of the reasons why The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe is his most famous and most successful book because he just does it so simply, so purely, so effectively, so so memorably um and everybody can relate to it um
1: well he's and 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 i and i almost don't like using this word because it doesn't quite say it um but he's so efficient in his prose that it does just like pierce our soul you know it just it says exactly what it needs to say and and no more to me like it says it to you
0: that's right you're right The, the word efficient is a very good adjective to use actually um because the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is is a very light book. It's it's not very long in comparison to the others. The longest, I think, is the Silver Chair, or maybe the Dawn Treader. But um, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe has a very light, economical feel to it. It's perfectly balanced, perfectly sprung. You know, like a a fencer on his toes or something, or like a right. a, a gymnast in in perfect trim. It's interesting that Lewis said that he felt at one particular point in his life, he he had to write a fairy tale or he would burst. And The Lion, the Witch and the Water, I think, in a way, really did burst out of him in, a, in an almost fully formed way. There, there's very little calculation about it. It just sort of emerged ready-made almost, or fell from heaven into his lap. Um, it was the book he was born to write, I think. Yeah. Whereas the later ninety books, brilliant though they are, are obviously a bit more calculated. There's a bit more planning going on, and uh, right. that, that again helps to explain why *The Lion* is is, is Lewis's masterpiece.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and and why it, it will be, you know, loved for generations to mm-hmm. come as as it has been. I I think it's it's if, if there's one book that will be remembered, um. That C.S. Lewis wrote, it will be The line the Witch, in the Wardrobe.
0: Mm. Yeah, I agree. Of, of all his books, that is, well, it's certainly the best known of the seven Narnia books, uh, but it's it's even better known than, say, The Screwtape Letters, which is mm-hmm. probably his best, his most successful other work of fiction, at least right. the best known other work of fiction. And fiction, of course, tends to last longer than, than nonfiction, you know, however great Lewis's nonfiction is, and it is, you know, marvelous, uh, works like Mere Christianity and The Four Loves and so on, they're not going to last as long.
1: Yes, I know. I, I think that's true. I think it's, I think, um, yeah, fiction, well, I mean, think about the, the, the old stories that we have the, you know, from, from medieval and, and from the, um uh, you know, even from, from the classic period, you know, those are, you know, the, they're, they're parched as histories many times, but they're really, they're, they're stories. They're stories that, that have, um, archetypal meaning and and the line, the witch in the wardrobe, I think belongs in that same corpus.
0: Yeah, 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 absolutely.
1: So, um, again, this is Mike Levitt. I'm uh, with And If Loving Remains and I'm talking to Professor Michael Ward, um, uh, the the author of Planet Narnia, the Seven Heavens, and the Imagination of C.S. Lewis. One of the um, one of the great books. If, if you are a C.S. Lewis fan, you I mean, you have to purchase and, and read this book. It's absolutely a necessity for if you if you want to see how uh the, the the third level of 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 um depth that um that that he brings to. Um, that C.S. Lewis brings to the Narnia series, um, its y- y- you're, y- you will be reading them with um, dim glasses until you read this book and understand the, the, this cosmological idea that, that he brings to the stories. Um, a quick question uh, for you, what, what are you working on these days? What's, what should we be looking forward from Professor Ward? What are you going to be doing next?
0: I've just uh, finished writing a, a guide to the abolition of man, which is Lewis's most philosophical work, um, which is really a, a defense of objective value. Uh, and it's quite a difficult, dense work, even though it's brief. Um, and lots, lots of university people study it and teach it and... and it, need, it, needs, it needs a guide, I think, because there's a lot going on. And uh, so I've written this guide and commentary, which will be coming out in March, and it's going to be called Men Without Chests, <laughs> which is the title of the first chapter of The Abolition of Man. So Men Without Chests, a guide to C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man will be published in March, all being, well, that's, that's my next big project. And hopefully... I may come back on this podcast and talk about it with you then.
1: Oh, I would love it. I appreciate that. that would be fabulous. Thank you. Um, one, one last question for you before I, before we finish up. You you participated, and I think were one of the main um, uh, organizers for having him um, having a memorial play for him at uh, West Westminster Abbey in Post Corner. Can you speak to that a little bit and what that meant to you and and why that was important?
0: Yes, I, w- I was asked to um, to spearhead that whole project, actually. The the Abbey has an educational institute. They put on lectures and, and day conferences and things. And one of the canons of the Abbey uh, asked me for ideas about what they might put on for, for such a, an educational program. And while I was speaking with that particular cleric, I said to him, well if you're going to be doing that for the 50th anniversary of lewis's death isn't it time that you also memorialized him in poet's corner and he said oh yeah what a good idea um i think, I think we'll do that um, so it, it fell to me to you know raise the money and 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 get and take soundings on the on the inscription that would go on the on the stone tablet and and then i thought someone Important would would do the unveiling. And I thought they might might even get a minor member of the royal family to do it. <laughs> but when I said to the Abbey, "Why don't we get you know the Duchess of Cambridge to do it?" They said, "Oh no, she's unavailable. She's pregnant. We can't get her." um Why do, and you you do it? They said to me, "You do it. It's, it's it's no great shakes. You just pull off a piece of cloth and and there there it is." So it fell to me to uh, unveil the thing as well. Wow! Um, which was a great privilege. One of the one of the most marvellous opportunities I've had in my life um, so yeah that was unveiled on precisely the 50th anniversary of his death back in 2013 and and uh, if, if, if your listeners don't know Poets Corner in Westminster Abbey is, is the place where all great English literary figures are memorialised Chaucer, Shakespeare, Wordsworth, Jane Austen the Bronte sisters, everyone um, some of them are actually buried there but most are just memorialised there and so yeah Uh, if ever you go to Westminster Abbey, do look for this memorial it's it's got Lewis's name and his dates and the inscription is the quotation from his essay, Is Theology Poetry the final line thereof which goes, I believe in Christianity, as I believe that the sun has risen not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else Mm.
1: That's beautiful and that's and and I think we could say some um, similar things about the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Why it, why it touches us is because it points to that light mm. um, that that you know that that lets us see more clearly. Mm. I'm just thrilled and I'm grateful for for Professor Ward to be on, and I look forward to talking to you again, hopefully in March. Yeah,
0: that would be great. Thanks for having me, Mike.
1: My pleasure. We'll we'll catch you on the flip side. See you next time.